Hi there, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where I, Ben, and I, Sarah, watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, uh, and then we talk about them, and then we rank them from best to worst. How are you tonight, Sarah? Doing pretty good. Uh, pretty excited to talk about German Expressionism. Seems to really tie itself well with the aesthetics of the horror movie genre. Yeah, there's a reason why horror movies and German Expressionism go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Why would you put peanut... It's peanut butter and jelly. Uh, really? That's We're not, the saying. The entire... No, it's peanut butter and chocolate. The entire... There's an entire candy company whose entire marketing structure is based around those two things tasting great together. We're just going to ignore the existence of Reese as a corporate giant. I'm sure that they belong to some umbrella candy oh, sure. company. Sure. They're not just we're not just like, Hi, I, I work for Reese's like no, they would say hi, I work for Cadbury. Right. I'm well, okay, but I'm just saying that like peanut butter and chocolate going well together is an established fact and I am upset that you are denying this. You know I don't like Reese's. I mean there's another I you don't there's a, a difference between not liking it and... Okay, they're owned by Hershey. That's all I wanted to know. All right. So today's film is Das Cabinet des Dr. Caligari from 1920. It was released on February 26th, 1920, which is actually really close to the date we're recording this now that I think about it. So it's it's almost pretty on the nose, it's 97 years old, this film. And of course it's a big one. I mean, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is like a massive, big classic title in the horror movie canon. You know, it's the first really, truly horror movie in some people's eyes. Roger Ebert said that once, that it was the first mm. true horror film. This is also the first movie we've encountered that we've seen before. That's right! Yes, this is the first movie we've done on the list that b we, have, we have seen before, we have experience with. So, now that we've got that, Sarah, what, what are your thoughts going into this from the last time you've seen Caligari? What's your history with this movie? What's your take on this movie? Last time we watched this movie, it was... Uh, during uh, uh, the month of October a few years ago, and we were watching all of these horror movies just for fun. Was that the first time you'd seen this movie? Yeah. I might have seen stills from film classes, but uh -huh. that's really it. And I remember thinking, wow, uh, Tim Burton isn't really original, is he? <laughs> nope. His entire shtick, everything, the look, the costumes, the makeup... The everything about his visual style is just straight up this movie. Like even just the, the character of Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, just that, that's just a, the, yep. the dude. Oh yeah. Movie. If you've seen this movie, you've seen every Tim Burton movie. I had seen this movie the first time in film school, which is I think where a lot of people probably encounter it for the first time. It's a sort of a film school perennial. Uh, this film's directed by. Robert Vina, who um, had directed horror movies before this, he had directed a horror movie called Fear, 
uh, that we could not acquire for this podcast because it's never had a home video release. Mm. Um, and that had come out in 1917. Uh, it's written by Hans Janowitz and Karl Meyer and stars Werner Krauss, Conrad Veidt, and has music by Giuseppe Betts. Um, and as you were just saying, it's sort of the quintessential German expressionist film. Mm -hmm. So do you want to maybe enlighten some of our less art history inclined <laughs> listeners as to what is German expressionism? Yeah, so German expressionism, it's actually really interesting looking at a timeline of this because the reason why German expressionism is like a phrase rather than like Italian expressionism or right. you know, American expressionism. Sudanese expressionism. <laughs> uh, is because when it was just beginning in the turn of the century, 1900s, Germany was just kind of like isolated from everything else. Okay. Um, and especially with World War One happening, it really isolated the spreading of the films and the, uh, the art and mm. all of these influences. So it really percolated in its own art form mm -hmm. before spreading elsewhere. And then that's when expressionism seemed to spread everywhere else. The kind of dates that I found online were like around 1905 and reached its peak in Berlin, 1920s. Okay. For German Expressionism, um, that may or may not have something to do with Metropolis. Oh, sure. Uh, from 1927 with Fritz Lang. Uh, Metropolis and Caligari were given as, like, the two big examples of German Expressionism. Right. And, I mean, Caligari is sort of the first film to really engage with Expressionism, and it's 1920. And then Metropolis comes along in 1927 and is a massive film that single-handedly bankrupted the German film industry, so yeah. <laughs> I can see why that's sort of the zenith, because they didn't have any money to do anything else after that. Yeah. So so what is Expressionism? I mean, I know what realism is, and I know what surrealism is. What's Expressionism? So it kind of depends what form you're talking about, but by and large, it's all about evoking expression and reflecting perspectives or emotional effect of your characters, rather than something like a, a realist depiction. So showing what's happening inside rather than two people sitting at a, a table having coffee. But it's it's sort of the idea is that you're sort of externalizing what's happening inside people. Yeah, exactly. You're distorting the environment around these people to reflect their inward emotions. Right. So if I was doing a expressionist painting about two people in love, the world around them might look very soft and flowy and fuzzy and vague. And if I was doing an expressionist painting about someone with extreme anxiety, the world might look very sharp and angular and twisted. Well, that's the thing. Like, it seemed to be that, especially with German expressionism, it dealt mainly with these very intense, dark emotional subjects rather than love. It would be madness or betrayal. Okay, so I, I'm not going to see many... Valentine's Day expressionist paintings is what you're telling me. Not in the German expression. Okay, maybe uh, maybe French expressionism. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of art, which is really where it originated, The Scream from 1893 by Edvard Munch um, is a really good example. Uh, I didn't realize The Scream was part of German expressionism, but uh, it was really, it, it kept coming up as an example. Um, and then another example that I thought I would highlight, because 
visually it seemed to pair well with Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is Houses at Night from 1912 by Carl Schmidt Rotloff. So in both those ones, and especially in Houses at Night, you can see a very stark contrast in colors, and that is really how it ties in with film as well, with like this emphasis of black and white contrast, uh, architectural contrasting, and yeah, it, especially with dealing with like feelings of madness and betrayal, it has this kind of nightmarish feel to it with these jagged lines and contrasting aspects of mise-en-scene. But I thought it was interesting to think about expressionism is literally evoking an expression of emotion. Uh -huh. And that's what I always thought impressionism was. So I was always under the impression <laughs> that impressionism was more that it was about your... Impression of something. That, that it's sort of the reverse. That you, in impressionism, you've looked at something external like... I don't know, ducks on a lake. And then you are taking your, you're filtering it through yourself and then coming up with an impression of it. Mm. Um, whereas in expressionism, it's more yourself sort of exploding outward onto the world around you. So I did a bit of research okay. with what impressionism is just because I got confused. Yeah. So it's not actually like oh, these are the feelings that this scene impressed upon me, uh -huh. uh, which is what I thought it was. Yeah. Um, it actually comes from Claude Monet's painting Impression. It seems to be focused on realist depictions, and it was more about violating rules to portray the real world. Okay. Rather than this kind of more emotional or, I'll say, philosophic uh, explanation with expressionism. So it's Impressionism... Because all the paintings resemble the painting impression. That's why it's an impressionism. Yeah. Okay. Huh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. So you mentioned that expressionism has kind of a philosophic basis. What's, what's the philosophic basis? So German expressionism is actually taken as a response to the traumas of World War I. I think that's also why it's so tied with feelings of madness and betrayal. Mm. The philosophical ideas behind it are very anti-authoritarian, and I think oh. that comes from rejecting the established protocols of what something's supposed to look like and, and going towards an expression of emotion rather than realism. People were tying it to anarchism, which is interesting. I think okay. it's just because it's anti-authoritarian. Yeah, that makes sense. If you're anti-authority, you're kind of an anarchist. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting to note that Mikhail Bakunin uh, was writing around 1870 to 76, so... Mm -hmm. He would have been, his works would have been proliferated. He jumped back yeah. and forth between Russia and Germany, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, anarchy was definitely a contemporary political idea, so. Yeah, and especially with, you know, Germany just coming out of World War One, uh, just having um, a revolution to establish the Weimar Republic. Uh, it hasn't even been a year that that revolution has ended, that right. we're having this movie the German Expressionism is, is also really focused on the individual, um, mainly because of that first-hand emotional experience. Right. Um, and this was really interesting, and I think this comes from the fact that it's a response to World War One in a way, is that it's it tends to be anti-technology. Oh, okay. The anti-technology stuff seems to come hand-in-hand -hand with this push for naturalism, which is interesting because in German Expressionism in theater, there's a rejection of naturalism. Uh, so I don't really know what's going on there, but it's 
there might have been a conflation of terms in the research I was doing between naturalism as in depiction of natural things and naturalism as in nature is pure. Right, versus sure. the insanity of human beings and right. their behavior. Right, like we want to go back to nature, but we don't necessarily, in our art, want to be drawing realistic flowers. We want, you know, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there was this one article that I read online that was really interesting. Um, they were talking about post-traumatic war syndrome and talking about German Expressionism as this response to World War One, and tying it to the revolution in the 60s as like the late 60s um, response to the Vietnam War and the trauma in, in that war as like these similar pushes against authority and going towards expression rather than realism. Mm. I don't know how well it was supported, but it was a very interesting idea to me. You, you sort of mentioned expressionist theater for a moment there. Mm -hmm. um, so what, I mean, I can sort of, I get now what, you know, what is expressionism in painting? What is expressionism in theater? It's really interesting how, um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier how German expressionism is different from impressionism. Mm. Um, the idea of surrealism often comes up in relation to expressionism, and that's because they're often used interchangeably. Okay. Um, especially with German expressionism in theater, because in a lot of the plays, they involve dreams and dreamlike elements. Mm -hmm. Very similar to what we've talked a little bit about in terms of film and art, the inequalities of the protagonist and humanity at large are expressed in whatever is on the stage. Two really well-known plays in German Expressionism is Spring Awakening. It was written in 1891, performed in 1906 by Frank Wedekind. And uh, the second one is A Dream Play, written in 1901, performed in 1907 by August Strindberg. So again, it's like this uh, play on emotions and linking what you see on the stage and these emotions to the themes and messages of the play. Um, very dreamlike, surreal, eerie. Uh, again, a lot of emphasis on shadow, stark lighting. I guess there was a lot of reliance on masks. Oh. Which is interesting. That is interesting. Um, they had distorted sets. Everything was very abstract. If there were props at all, they were purely for symbolic use. Huh. Um, otherwise, there might not even be anything on the stage except what the actors might need to interact with. Huh. So very... Minimalist. Mm-hmm, exactly. In terms of the characters, everything was very stereotypical, um, even grotesque caricatures, uh, and they were playing symbols or representative of a, of a social class. Okay, sure, so archetypes. Exactly. What I thought was really interesting is, uh, in the research I did, they emphasized how silence and long pauses were key to German Expressionist theater. <laughs> so that ties in really well with silent films. Sure, yeah. A lot of the times, dialogue was expressed in relation to movement. Uh, so there is this element of, oh, well, they just must be overacting. Um, but really, it's just tying what they're saying to the movement that they're doing. Um, a lot of the acting is to show tormented emotions. And one thing that was interesting, and... I don't recall this being in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, but I guess there was a mix of presentational and representational acting styles. 
which, and I have to look this up because I didn't know what this meant, presentational is an acknowledgement that the audience is there. Mm. Um, the actor or the character is aware that they are performing for an audience versus representational where the actor slash character um, doesn't realize they're in a play. It'll be interesting to see if that's in Caligari um, is because it's a film. Right. So you would have to interact with the camera, I guess. So um, it's interesting that you bring up the anti-authoritarianism as being a key part of expressionism because it's certainly a key part of Caligari. Uh, the two writers, uh, Hans Janowitz and Karl Meyer, uh, they were both pacifists who had a very difficult time with World War I. Janowitz served as an officer in the military but he became very embittered because of his wartime service as an officer um, and just very rejectful of authority and government and organizational structures and institutions uh, simply because of that experience. Meyer was a pacifist, and I guess, you know, in the German army in the time of World War I, such a thing as, like, a conscientious objector as a concept didn't really exist. Mm. So he feigned madness to avoid service, which meant that he had to spend uh, intense examinations under a military psychiatrist to A, prove that he was mad, and then B, as quote-unquote treatment for the madness he did not have, uh, which led him to have a very distrustful view of authority figures as well. Mm. So these two men met through Gilda Langer, uh, an actress with whom Meyer was in love, and she's actually the basis for... Uh, the Jane character, who's one third of a love triangle in the film. Langer thought that the two should know each other and write a movie together. She also encouraged Janowitz to see a fortune teller, uh, who told him that he would survive the war, but Langer would die, uh, which proved true, uh, and this inspired a scene in the film. The film was written to be anti-authoritarian. Uh, Dr. Caligari, who is a hypnotist, was written to represent the German wartime government, and uh, Cesare, uh, the sonambulist, was written to represent the common man being conditioned by that government to kill people. Mm. Probably the most influential film theorist work on this film is a book by Siegfried Krakauer called From Caligari to Hitler. Uh, this book was published in 1947 and argued that the escapist German cinema of the Weimar Republic was inextricably linked to the traumas of World War I, and that this film, Caligari, demonstrated the German people's subconscious need for a tyrannical voice to overcome the social chaos of the time. That basically not only are is the German public Cesare, but the German public wants a Caligari figure um, because there was so much social chaos in the 1920s and such a sense of loss of place and self that essentially it was just very easy for Hitler to come in and that this film basically predicts that by kind of tapping into this, this subconscious need of the people, basically, was the argument. The film is set in Holstenwald, which is the western section of the Hamburg Wall Ring. So Hamburg, as a medieval city, has a wall that goes around it, and then you have sort of quadrants of the city that exist around these wall rings. Um, however, it was decided to give the film this graphic, fantastical, expressionist style for its sets and backdrops, 
by the film's art director, Herman Warm, um, who felt that it, they fit the story uh, and what it was saying. The film was produced by Decla Studio because it was believed that it could be made cheap and its macabre horror was thought to be potentially very popular. The film has a frame narrative, which establishes everything as sort of a delusional flashback. Mm. This was added with director Robert Vina's approval uh, as a way to allow the viewing public of the film to transition from a natural style at the start of the film to the movie's expressionist style in the main body so that it wouldn't be too jarring or confusing Mm. to a viewing public who would not be used to seeing a film with such an extreme stylization. Um, You know, we watched uh, Eerie Tales last episode, which was a German film, same period, just a year earlier, you know, and it had really cool lighting and stuff, but it was still a very, you know, the the places looked like real places and the exteriors looked like real exteriors, you know? Mm -hmm. I guess Janowitz... Uh, one of the two writers, he was strongly opposed to this frame narrative <laughs> getting added. He claimed that it violated his work, uh, raped its intentions, oh. turned symbolism into cliche, and a revolutionary film into a conformist one. So, bear that in mind. When Herman Warm, the art director, uh, suggested this expressionist style for the story, the film's producers agreed to it for commercial reasons, uh, because expressionism was seen as fashionable at the time. So they reasoned that even if the film was bad, the artistic style would get the film attention and make it profitable, uh, which I thought was amusing that, like, they were willing to back this... Art film. Right. <laughs> for this idea that, well, you know, but it's fashionable to be artistic. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally... Uh, painted backdrops were seen as being cheaper than real sets or locations, and it was thought that they would artistically distinguish the film from the dominant Hollywood style. Uh, the thinking then, and kind of now too, was that artistic distinction was the best strategy for foreign films to gain attention in other markets. So rather than trying to compete with the Hollywood style directly, you just go in a totally other direction. Mm-hmm. Predictably, the writers hated the unique visual style of the film. They thought that it cheapened the story, um, made things too obvious, all these kind of complaints. However, after the film became successful, they changed their stance and immediately began claiming that it was their idea and was indicated in the script to begin with. (laughs) Uh, The script was eventually discovered and is now in German film archives, and there's nothing about the expressionist style of the film in the script. Uh, So just a case of, rather than admitting you were wrong, deciding to co-opt other people's good ideas. Yeah. That's really funny that they felt so strongly against this kind of art style. Because, like, all of the complaints of, it makes it too cliche, like, those are all, that's what German Expressionism does. Mm -hmm. It turns your themes into symbols. Yeah. Yeah. The actors in the film were responsible for their own makeup and costume, as Mm. was common at this time. So they were made aware of the need that they needed to fit these expressionist backdrops. Krauss and Veit, who play Caligari and Cesare, uh, they had the most experience in expressionist theater. Hmm. They were able to design their costumes and give performances that were very much in harmony with the visual style. The film's romantic trio, on the other hand, were naturalist actors, so they kind of come across as a bit incongruous. The film was marketed 
to both artistic elites who would come for the expressionism and common masses who would come for the horror. Yeah. Um, it had a very large marketing campaign, which was kind of uncommon for films at this time, uh, with a tagline, which I thought was fascinating. The tagline for the film is, You must become Caligari. And the movie ended up becoming highly successful, uh, elicited screams and even fainting spells from <laughs> women in the audience. Oh, you know, that's when you know it's a good movie. Mm. The King Kong effect. Right. Uh, one of the key reasons why I think we still talk about Caligari today is because of when it was released. Mm. Um, which is, coming in 1920, it was released just as foreign film markets were easing restrictions on importing German films. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that sort of thing had been totally off-limits during World War I. Uh, so the film achieved a lot of international critical attention and notoriety. It drew worldwide attention to the artistic merit of German cinema, um, greatly influencing subsequent films, largely because it came out sort of as this very artistically unique German film, right as sort of those floodgates opened. Mm -hmm. The film was very successful in the United States, uh, commercially. Uh, there were protests against it, but only because of its German origins, oh. not because of the content. Because a movie hadn't really looked like this before, do you think that's why they might have protested it? They would have seen like how stark it was? and The film's appearance actually is what caused the greatest amount of critical dissension over the film. Hmm. So German critics were mixed. They ranged from ecstatic praise to complete condemnation, and the ones that were condemning it were primarily on philosophical or theoretical grounds. There was a similar critical split amongst French critics and Russian critics. The split was largely over the film's stylized sets and use of decor. This, there was a theoretical argument amongst the critics, because this was the 1920s was a time when film theory was really starting to become a field for the first time, and having a lot of people writing about it. Um, so, you know, people like Jean Epstein, or Abel Gantz, or Jean Cocteau, or um, Sergei Eisenstein were arguing about this movie in their respective film magazines. <laughs> and the argument was largely over the idea that this film doesn't really use cinematography. Uh, the camera's largely stationary. There isn't a lot of lighting. This movie's really about its sets and its backdrops and its costumes. That's what gives the film its style. So the argument was that this wasn't really a film. It was a filmed stage play because it lacked the elements that made cinema a unique art form and therefore was not a good film. That was sort of the philosophical debate over this movie's identity. Um, so all the European critics had this kind of divide between the ones that embraced it and the ones that rejected it. The American critics were unanimous in their praise. <laughs> the American critics loved this movie, thought it was brilliant, all this kind of stuff. The only complaints were that they were afraid it was too good, that it would mean that German foreign market films would intrude upon the American-dominated film industry and serve as a threat to <laughs> Hollywood. That was the only complaint the Americans had. All right. <laughs> and of course, here we are 97 years later, and it's a definitely, you know, a cornerstone of, of cinematic history. Mm-hmm, definitely. One thing that was interesting was when I was looking up German Expressionism in film, just to see, you know, the style and philosophy and things like that. One site listed the student of Prague 
as an example? Largely for its sets and its backdrops. Because um, it has those really stylized-looking scenes in the in the Jewish cemetery and stuff. But I think that over the years, a kind of false equivalency mm. has been built up between German horror cinema and German expressionism, which causes yeah. the two to become conflated. For example, you often see Nosferatu listed as an expressionist film. And while it has the stark, shadowy lighting, and it has kind of the expressionist, um, like, Houses at Night, which you referenced, is almost identical to a backdrop painting in Nosferatu. Nosferatu, for the most part, is actually a very naturalist film. Mm -hmm. It's shot on real locations. It's shot in daylight. It's shot in, you know, real castles and real places and tries to be very naturalist rather than expressionist. Um, so I think there's just, over the years, become this tendency to call any German horror film with kind of dark lighting <laughs> from the 20s German expressionist. Yeah. Well, are we ready to dive in for our Caligari viewing? Yeah, where can people find this movie to watch along with us? Well, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, like everything else we've watched so far, is a pre-1923 film meaning that it is, technically speaking, in the public domain. So the easiest place to check it out is YouTube. There are a lot of copies on YouTube. <laughs> like most silent films of this period, though, the problem with public domain means there are many different versions. So versions that have scenes missing, versions that are poor quality, versions that have terrible soundtracks, versions that, because this is a German film, have terrible intertitle translation or replacement. Um, so there's a lot to look out for. However, Caligari recently received a very prestigious 4K restoration in 2014, and that restoration has been released to home video by numerous sources, uh, primarily Masters of Cinema in Europe and Kino International in North America. Uh, so Kino has a version that's on YouTube. It's a paid version, and I mean... It's a public domain film. There's no reason you should have to pay for it. But, I, like I mentioned in a previous episode, you know, these restoration processes take a lot of work and a lot of attention and care. And it also means that you know for sure that you're getting something that has, that's delivering to you as close to the original experience of watching mm -hmm. this film as you can get. You know, one of the things about Caligari is that it had handwritten and painted intertitles rather than typed that were designed to match the expressionist aesthetic of the rest of the film. So some versions that you see that are cheaper versions don't have that, right? This restoration does. Um, this restoration tries to replicate the original score created by uh, Giuseppe Betts. All that kind of stuff. Uh, the original tinting and color palette of those tints, mm -hmm. uh, which is so important to mood. So you're free to go on YouTube and watch along with us on a free version, but I would recommend, uh, it's only five bucks, just rent the Kino-sponsored restoration, and you'll very much uh, appreciate the effort. Great. So folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Ben, first thoughts? Well, it's... I mean, it's hard to give first thoughts because we've both seen this movie already, right? <laughs> Second thoughts? There we go. Yeah, it's it's sometimes hard to find something to say about films like this, especially, you know, films that are classics, films that people have poured over and analyzed for 97 years... And also when you've seen it before. Because when you are seeing it for the first time, at least you have that initial like gut reaction to talk about. But now it's like, well, what do I say? Everybody's said everything. I think as an expressionist film, Caligari kind of serves the role of what the avant-garde art film does. <laughs> which is that art films and avant-garde films and experimental films... I mean, this movie's got plot and character and narrative, so I'm sure that, like, it doesn't really qualify to, like, modern definitions of what, like, an avant-garde experimental film is. <laughs> but it fills the same role, which is that it introduces techniques and styles in an extreme fashion that then get assimilated piecemeal into the mainstream. Okay. So, you know, no other film is as extremely expressionistic as Caligari. You know, none of the other quote-unquote German expressionist films go as far as this one, but other films take bits and pieces. Uh, some set design here, a bit of lighting there, makeup, character design, etc., etc. You know, like, as much as this movie's a grandfather to the horror genre, you also have to admit that it's the grandfather ultimately to film noir as well. Because of the stark lighting, evoking a mood and expression of the dark, gritty streets. Right, and also, like, it's sort of subjective nature, and it's psychologically damaged and doomed protagonist. You know, the hallmark of film noir is that the hero loses. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what happens here. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have tied it to all of these other things. When did film noir as a genre come out? Like, really become established? Um, there are official dates, but like like any genre, film noir kind of amorphously, <laughs> you know, developed over time from a lot of different things. Narrative genre conventions of crime films and the stylistic genre conventions of German Expressionism kind of had a baby, and that baby was film noir. Officially, the dates are 1941 to 1958. It's, it's Maltese Falcon to Touch of Evil. So before the break, you mentioned how part of why this movie is so notable is it came out right on the cusp of rules about foreign movie releases being relaxed. So if that's like just the tip of the 1920s, uh -huh. movies like this would have had time to kind of percolate in people's minds. into Exactly, yeah. It's about 20 years later that you start to see film Hollywood films with these kind of stylistic elements in them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you think of nowadays in our heads, I think we picture directors as being fairly young, but in the studio system of the 30s and 40s, um, you had to work your way up to that sort of position after kind of rising your way through the ranks. So if you think about someone, you know, in college at the age of 20 seeing this movie, you know, and then they're 40 and now they can make their own films, you know. I was kind of thinking about the genre, the mm -hmm. horror genre, only in not so much, oh, how had the influences gone past this movie, I was thinking about this movie and previous ones in their portrayal of Italians. Sure, we've had like a weird string of 
movies. Anti-Italian. Right, anti-Italian. Anti-immigrant. But, like, yeah, anti-immigrant and anti-foreigner, which is, like, something that you get up into the modern day, but, like, specifically anti-Italian. And I, I remember we were talking about it a couple episodes ago, and I was wondering if Italian was just, like, a generic stand-in? So it's not. Okay. I, there was clearly a missing piece of the puzzle, for me at least. And now I know a whole lot about Italian immigration, so... Buckle in, listeners. <laughs> You're gonna get learned. So between 1860 and World War One, nine million people left Italy. For, for in general? In general. In general, okay. Almost all of the statistics I could find or any articles about, like, racism against Italians were focused on America. That sort of makes sense. Yeah, but I think with such a large number of 9 million people, I think we can extrapolate it to the rest of Europe as well. Mm -hmm. um, or at least the idea of such a large population immigrating would at least be in people's minds. So did you, did you discover what the rationale behind the immigration was? Like, was something happening in Italy? There was a mix of landowners charging farmers too much for their land, cholera outbreaks... So because a large part of the rationale of leaving is because, oh, we can't afford to work on this land, mm. we'll leave, make money, come back, mm -hmm. buy the land, and we'll be fine. Right. So you had people leaving, and then as they're getting money, maybe they're helping their families come over, and so you had more and more people coming over. Right, which is sort of... Not necessarily getting the money to come back yet. Which is sort of what you see with immigration patterns, even today, where people you know, leave home, and then either, you know, and then they're sending their money back home, and then more people are leaving from home to get more money, and so on. Yeah, most people didn't start coming back to Italy um, until uh, a little bit around now. It was like, I guess Mussolini <laughs> left to Sweden, and mm. then came back in like the 1920s, which is weird. Huh. Um, but yeah, most people started coming back after World War Two. As far as anti-Italian racism mm -hmm. goes, three million Italians came to America during what's called the New Immigration, um, and that's to differentiate it from Old Immigration, uh, which sounds like a silly differentiation, but it's important. In the 1890s, this huge mass immigration with this new immigration of Slavics, Jews, and Italians. Mm -hmm. It gave everyone of that identity this idea of a perpetual foreigner mm -hmm. kind of identity. And because of this new and old immigration, these new immigrants were competing for these low-wage jobs with other earlier immigrants, which meant that these new immigrants faced hostility on all sides. In part of learning about this, a lot of the, at, at least in the States, um, a lot of the hostility towards Italians uh, was because of a, a trend towards anti-Catholicism. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and did you know that the largest mass lynching in the United States history happened in 1891 in New Orleans, targeting Italian-Americans? I did not know that. That's not something I would have expected. Yeah, to be fair, all of these stats are from a U.S. perspective. Right. But I think it's fair to acknowledge, like, 9 million people leaving Italy between 1860 to World War One. They can't all go to America. Sure. So, to tie it back to the film we watched, are you suggesting that Caligari and Cesare 
are perhaps not German names? I am suggesting that. Okay. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so we have this continuing trend then of Italians as the other, which is still a weird idea for me to wrap my head around, but uh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that, like, the the tropes of what makes the other don't really change. Yeah. Um, you know, there's all these things that I think we think of as being tropes of a particular racial stereotype, but they're just racism in general. Like, the idea that the other is a trickster, you know, and that he lies and that he cheats. And, yeah, I don't know. That's It's really interesting to consider. Yeah. I had a few questions about this film that I thought we could discuss. Sure. This this movie brought up a lot of questions for me watching it this time. Let me hit pause. Is this movie well known enough that we probably don't need to summarize it? Oh, hmm. I think I was assuming it was, but we've summarized every other movie we've watched, and to assume that a 97-year-old movie is so well known <laughs> is, like, probably really elitist of me. Uh, so there's my film snob side showing. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'll summarize it really quick, and then we can go into these questions. Okay. So, film opens with uh, this handsome-looking guy telling this other man who's had some spooky experiences in the past uh, a story about why his own spooky stories are way better. Yeah. Uh, some spooky Olympics going on. Um, so he opens with, so there's this weird guy who had this act at this fair where he had this sleepwalker who he would wake up and then he would tell you your fortune. Uh, and he told my friend that he would die the next morning. And sure enough, he died. Uh, He'd been murdered. <laughs> yeah, everything's structured as a flashback with uh, our main handsome guy, uh, Mr. Francis. 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 It's just Francis. Uh, with Francis telling it from his point of view. Uh, the police catch this other possible murderer who swears he has nothing to do with the, his friend's murder, but Francis uh, suspects the Dr. Caligari uh, and uh, his sleepwalker Cesare. So he and his fiance's dad, mm -hmm. basically, yep. um, go to investigate this. Meanwhile, the love interest, Jane, for reasons I won't go into, happens to meet the sleepwalker at the fair, and she's the next target. Uh, so as Francis and... Dr. Olson. Dr. Olson, dad of love interest, uh, investigate Dr. Caligari, Cesare goes and tries to kill Jane, but fails, and instead tries to kidnap her. He's under orders. He's like, well, I'll just kidnap her instead. Specifically, like, he's hypnotized. He's not, it's not just like... Under orders. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just like he receives some documents, and it's <laughs> like, okay, here are my orders. Like, he's, as a sleepwalker, been hypnotized by Caligari to go out and do these things he wouldn't otherwise do. Yes. So as Cesare runs away, uh, and he's been seen doing this kidnapping... Francis and Dr. Olson follow Dr. Caligari back to this insane asylum, basically, and they realize, like, Dr. Caligari is actually the director of this insane asylum, and they figure it out, and they confront him. He loses his mind, he just goes very crazy, and then becomes a patient in his own insane asylum. That ends the flashback. We come back to handsome guy Francis going back into the building with this uh, other person. And we see Cesare uh, just as another patient. We see Jane, the love interest, as just another patient. And it turns out the guy who we thought was Dr. Caligari actually is 
the director of the Insane Asylum, and Francis was insane all along. What a twist. Yeah, what a twist. So my question about this film is, what do you think of this frame narrative? Because we've mm-hmm. got the story, you know, Caligari comes to town, he's got Cesare, uh, and then the big twist is we follow Caligari back, and he's the director of the asylum, and we find out that, you know, he's doing all this because he read about the, ex- like, his name isn't even Caligari. We find out that he's probably German. Mm-hmm. You know, he probably really is a German person, and like, so is Cesare, that these are just names they've adopted because he had read some story about some guy named Caligari pulling off this exact same deal, like, 200 years earlier and wants to see if it can be done because he has a, a professional curiosity as a, a psychologist and so he's manipulating this patient to do these things that's already a twist mm-hmm. we've already got our twist ending and then the movie double twists us with this francis was crazy all along thing so the writers i, I mentioned this before the break you know the writer was so upset about the addition of this frame narrative what what do you think What do I think in terms of how it changes the story? Well, like, is it necessary? Is it any better than saying it was all a dream? Does it, you know, make the entire time we were watching the movie pointless? Like, what does it add or take away? Do you agree with the writer that it ruins the film? I think it does undercut the writer's original message of being anti-authority, dealing with his own experiences in in an insane asylum, as we've talked about before the break. But I don't think... I think it still works as the the movie. Um, I mean, we, we talked about before the break as well why the framing device was put in um, because they were worried about how audiences would react to such a drastic set design, mm-hmm. um, which I think is fair. I mean, we've encountered some films where it's the first close-up ever done, you know? Right. Uh, or like with D.W. Griffith ha- having to hold his audience's hand as he cross-cuts and stuff, and that's why he overdoes it. Mm-hmm. Um So I think it's an understandable decision. I think an interesting thing I noted was, so the frame narrative was developed to provide a context for the set design. Thus, expressionism because Francis is crazy. But this is like a feedback loop because Mm. expressionism creates a world that's fueled by the neuroses of the protagonist. So the film is expressionist because Francis is crazy, Mm -hmm. but Francis is crazy because the film is expressionist. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, I never thought of it that way. I mean, when, like, the film... When the flashback opens, we keep cutting back to Francis saying, you know, there was this town, and then mm-hmm. it cuts to, oh, we see the town and like, this really neat expressionist... Backdrop. Pa- backdrop painting. Um, and then it cuts back to Francis saying, and then there was a fair, and we cut back, and it's, like, the exact same painting of the town, but now there's a fair in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Again, with uh, the introduction of Dr. Caligari, um, I think that sets the film up as saying, you know, this is supposed to be in Francis's in, in Francis's frame of mind. Um, but then, why didn't they use different set pieces when they we come back from the flashback and we're in the insane asylum? Right, because when we're in the real world, they're still using the crazy set design then. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the purpose of the frame narrative is to establish this is a subjective world and therefore it doesn't look normal, why does the real world still look like that? Um, if everything's a flashback from Francis's delusionary 
point of view, if everything's a story he's telling, why are there scenes that are just from Caligari's perspective, like him going to the town clerk to get a permit to set up his tent and stuff? Mm -hmm. Um, It's very, you know, and then the question is, what would this film be like if there wasn't the frame narrative? How does that change the way we examine it? Because, you know, if the reason that we have this expressionist style is Francis is crazy okay, that makes sense. You know, we're seeing the whole world through the lens of this crazy person. But if we remember that the set design was decided upon first, how does the set design express expressionism in the film if we don't have that framing narrative? Yeah, it makes it seem like it's such a chaotic world, especially because the first character, mm-hmm. if we cut out the the flashback mm-hmm. part that's set up... The first person we would see if you didn't have the frame narrative is Caligari. And my my question is, if you remove the frame narrative, is Francis still the protagonist, or is it Caligari? Well, it would definitely be Caligari, especially because we learn uh, through the reading of his diary his own personal thoughts, right? He goes crazy. He sees Mm -hmm. become Caligari written on the sky and things in in a really neat scene. I think that, you know, if you don't have the frame narrative... The person whose insanity the set design reflects is Caligari. Yeah. And when I say Caligari, I mean the asylum director, because he doesn't, we don't actually learn what his real name is. But, you know, he's the one whose obsessions we go into. He's the one whose um, insanity fuels the plot until we get the revelation in the frame narrative. I mean, we still get shots and scenes where Caligari isn't in them. Yes. But if we didn't have the frame narrative, it wouldn't matter, because we could just be telling the story from a third-person perspective. The scenes that Francis are not in become incongruous because we're being told the story as a first-person flashback. No, I mean, if we didn't have the framing device, and it was all from Caligari, like, we're seeing the world, it's uh, reflecting Caligari's own insanity. Mm. The scenes where Caligari isn't even present, like when Alan wakes up and goes, oh, there's a fair, mm-hmm. or when Alan, Francis, and Jane are all hanging out, Presumably, we wouldn't have this same kind of set design. Well, I guess it depends on what the philosophy of the set design is. I suppose that it makes sense for everything to look like that when it's Francis's story, because he's the one telling the story, regardless of whether he's there or not. And he can be in things that he's not present for, because it's not a rational testimony, it's a delusional one. Yeah. I think that with the framing narrative, I would argue that the anti-authority theme is maintained, Because Francis casts the director of the asylum as the villain in his delusion. But in making the director, in truth, a man seeking to cure his anti-authority patient, you know, I can see where the idea comes from that the story promotes tyranny, Mm. which we sort of talked about before the break. Yeah, well, because it's... I think it's subconscious, though. I don't know if it's intentional. So at the end, when the asylum director... Is like, ah, he thinks that I'm Caligari, I know exactly how to cure him, and then the movie ends. Like, our trust is reestablished in our in the authority figure. See, I'm not sure. And then we we start to distrust and be suspicious of Francis because he's no longer a reliable narrator. This is the part of the film I struggle with. Okay. It's hard to tell, in my opinion, who in the end has our sympathies. Because mm. the question you have to ask is, okay, so Why did we see this whole long story? You know, what about it informs what we can tell about the real world? Because if all of it was untrue, 
and if it has no bearing on Francis's reality, then wasn't it a waste of time? Mm. So the question I start to ask is, okay, why would Francis's delusion cast the asylum director as someone who, in his delusion, abuses his power, you know, is conducting illicit experiments on patients? You know, does that speak to Francis's re- reality? Is any possible part of Francis's story real? Is it all delusion? You know, does it matter? I think there's nuggets of truth because Jane exists in the quote-unquote real world. She has the delusion of being a queen, mm-hmm. but that implies that there is a relationship there. Mm-hmm. Well, and like Cesare's real, but we yeah. just don't know anything about him. Yeah, he likes a flower. He's holding a flower. Here's where my thoughts are leading me. Okay. And it's the question we ask every week. Is this a horror film? I was actually thinking that too, because when we first finished watching this, um, I was like, well, what, what, what am I going to say? Like, there are, like, what, 50 books written on this? Let alone, <laughs> like... And then I, I fell into that trap of assuming German Expressionism equals horror film. Right. Uh, because I was like, well, clearly it's a horror film. And then yeah. I started thinking... Because of this framing narrative, really, uh, with the framing narrative, it becomes this almost like a psychological thriller, definitely psychological in nature, versus an allegorical horror story that the writer seemed to be going for in the first place. This is amazing, because you have had the exact opposite conclusion that I had. (laughs) My argument is that with the framing narrative, it's a horror story. Without it, it's a thriller. Okay, so you explain first. Okay, so when I'm thinking about, you know, is something a horror film, the question I ask is, where is the fear coming from, right? This is where I think the frame narrative earns its pay. Without it, this is just a mystery thriller dressed in disturbing set design. Yes, there's murder, and yes, there's obsession, and yes, there's imperiled women being carried off into the night and twist endings. But no more than in the average mystery story or thriller story. You know, this could be a Sherlock Holmes detective story if we wanted it to be without that frame narrative. While Cesare's connection to Jane and his modus operandi in regards to her, you know, ends up being highly influential to, say, the monsters of Universal Studios. You know, the number of times I've seen Frankenstein Mm -hmm. bust in through a white-gowned woman's window and carry her off into the (laughs) hills. He himself is not enough to push this film past expressionist thriller and into horror. But the frame narrative does. Because now we have fear. What's real? What is delusion? What is truth? Uh, How can we even know? What are the director's motives? Why does Francis fear him so? How can any of us be sure of our subjective realities? This uncertainty, this horror of the unknown throws everything we've seen previously into question, and thus causes us to leave the cinema with a chill that we might not have otherwise. When everything was more tightly wrapped up, oh, the villain's been arrested and thrown in the madhouse. Nice. You know, thus this is horror. Caligari seeks the power to dominate the helpless and the obedient. You know, one man sees his evil, but Caligari knows how to cure him. Without the frame story, the hero, Francis... The independent man, who's not a part of the police or any of these other institutions, he triumphs over authority and institutions and control by showing that they're abused and sending the abuser away. With the frame narrative, he fails. His rebellion, 
his investigation, his triumph, it's all delusion and thus meaningless. The fight against authority is hopeless, thus horror. In the objective context of the real world, can we be sure that the director is sane and competent and trustworthy? By retaining Francis's mad, subjective conceptions of the asylum, in the real, objective world, the set design, as well as the ending, uh, which has this kind of ambiguous Kuleshov effect iris in on the director as the last shot of the film, mm. the f movie creates an ending where we can never know the truth. You know, uncertainty, unknown in the face of authority, that's horror. When you know who authority is and what it's doing, what its plans are, you don't have fear of it. It might still be evil, but you know what it's up to. When you don't know the motives and what authority figures are doing, that's what makes you afraid. So that's sort of my argument for why it's the frame story that makes this a horror movie, not the rest of it. So I think your case is stronger than mine, but what I was thinking was built into all of this is this fear of being manipulated, um, suspicion of authority and distrust of our own minds, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you've, you've laid that out very clearly. It really comes down to the fact that uh, the last words of the film are, uh, uh, I know how to cure him. Mm -hmm. um, and because I, I feel like, like the framing device puts the trust back into authority and puts our suspicions onto the, our narrator... I, th I see where you're going. The question yeah. becomes, if after the whole movie, do your sympathies remain with Francis, or do they transfer to the director? Because the, the entire main plot teaches you to suspect the director and trust Francis. Even after we learn that his story was a delusion, for me, the longevity of his story means that my sympathies remain with him, even when the film's telling me that they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I still distrust the director, and the use of the expressionist set design in the asylum during those scenes, and, you know, the way that the camera irises in on the director at the very end, you know, it's like the spinning top at the end of Inception. Like, <laughs> I mean, so I'm sitting here going, I don't trust that director, and I think there's something fishy going on, and therefore it's a horror movie. But you're right, if you come out of that delusion going, ah, Francis is crazy, the director will cure him, authority knows what's best for you, you're right, it's now just a psychological thriller. And I think the reason why I was thinking psychological thriller versus allegorical horror mm. is because of um, the excellent background and context you gave at the uh, at the beginning of this episode, talking about why the writers wrote this and where they were coming from, of, oh, we need to wake the sleeping German public. Wake them up so that they aren't manipulated uh -huh. in the future uh, by authority. Um, and so because the framing device undercuts that, in my opinion, um, that keeps it from being a, an allegorical story. And I guess because it seemed like their intent was a horror movie, that's why I thought... It, it with the framing device it doesn't do that but I remember back in our very first episode when we were talking about well what is a horror movie versus another genre mm -hmm. um, you said something about the monster being overcome or not yeah if you if you have a hero and he's able to go and defeat the monster and you know 
get rid of it or whatever, like, you're just, you're telling a heroic epic, right? Yeah, and horror is about survival. Surviving the monster, right? You don't defeat it, you get away. Yeah, and as you were explaining your rationale for why this is a horror movie with the framing device that fits in with that definition really, really well. What's interesting is that your analysis agrees with uh, Siegfried Krakauer, who is the most like cited film theorist to talk about this film. He wrote the uh, From Caligari to Hitler book. Yeah. His argument was that the frame narrative did undercut the anti-authority message, and in doing so showed the subconscious need for authority figures that led to Hitler. That by producing a film that said, basically, your every man character is crazy and can't tell up from down, so he needs someone to come in and cure him, therefore Hitler. I think a big part of this comes down to film literacy. Mm. Because basically what sold me with your argument is talking about the Kuleshov effect mm -hmm. uh, with, like, the last shot on the dude's face. We maybe want to explain what that is now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So the Kuleshov effect is basically... Uh, Alfred Hitchcock has, like, a really great uh, example of this where he's just kind of like, looking down his nose and then slyly smiles. And if you cut from that shot to a shot of uh, a kid playing with a ball, you read the man's expression as, oh, he's... Kindly old gentleman. Yeah. Um, whereas if you uh, have that expression and then cut to uh, a woman walking down the street, you get this the impression of uh, the man's face as a, a pervert. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's the exact same expression, but you get a different meaning from it. So that's the Kuleshov effect. Yeah, and so what I'm talking about, you know, in regards to this film is the movie ends with the director says, I can cure him, and then he turns right to camera, and his expression is more or less blank. He's not, you know, smiling evilly or anything. It's pensive. It's pensive, but he just, they hold on him, and they iris in, and they hold the iris in to focus on him for a bit before continuing it and going out. And it was just the fact that they held it just caused me to interpret that as a ambiguous face that might suggest ulterior motives, but again, I'm only reading it that way because I've had this whole long nightmare story to lead into that. The very first shot of Caligari mm -hmm. is that. Yeah. When he shows up and, like, as the flashback's being set up, we see him kind of walk into the fairgrounds, look into the camera, and it has the iris in, and as it focuses in on his face, he kind of, he's always hunched over, and as he, as the iris goes in, he kind of stands up a little bit more straight, um, which was something I noticed. So that's really interesting, that the first and last shot of that character, mm. it's exactly the same, yeah, but different personas. Yeah, I think... This is a great time for me to talk about... So, before the break, we talked about the critical reaction to this film, and how what divided it was the question of whether this was a film that really used the potential of cinema versus just kind of was all set design and backdrops and thus nothing more than a filmed play. Mm. And I think talking about those iris ins really shows that that's a, a faulty argument. Yeah. Even when, in the process of trying to expose the... Asylum director as Caligari, um, we start reading, or Francis starts reading his diary, and it goes from like an, an iris in on them reading the diary to an, in the same frame, uh, an iris out, out 
uh, to Caligari as like what was happening in that it, when he was writing that particular entry into the diary. And it's all intercut with him sleeping at home because they're reading his diary while he's sleeping. Yeah. There's also a great example of cross-cutting where um, Francis, in the delusion story, he suspects Cesare. So he goes and, like, watches Cesare all day, and Cesare never moves, and we're intercutting that with actually seeing Cesare going around and doing stuff. And then later it's explained as, oh, Caligari has, like, a dummy of Cesare for just such an occasion. Yeah. But that's a great example of cross-cutting. I think that even though the film's set design, you know, definitely steals the show, the film has a great use of framing and composition and lighting to direct the audience where to look. Mm. in its chaotic sets. Um, you know, it'll use lighting to silhouette people, or it'll use framing to make someone centered or big in the frame or small in the frame. And, you know, composition uh, so that the contrasts between light and dark bring people out rather than push people into the background mm -hmm. so that we know who to look at. And that's something you don't get in theater. In theater, your eyes wander and you never quite know where to look. Yeah. Uh, film can tell you. The other thing is that Iris Inn is an explicit part of that, because in a standard use of Iris, which is like, this is not something you see in, it's very much associated as like a silent film trope. You don't see yeah. this in modern film anymore, but probably the most notable place that like listeners not familiar with silent film have seen it is probably like cartoons still do Iris in and out a lot. Oh yeah, the Looney Tunes thing. Yeah, so it's just where you have um, a black edge of the frame that kind of circles in to a point. Mm -hmm. And in a traditional Iris in or out, it's a constant rate. It's just the way you open a scene or end a scene. And it just goes out or in. But in Caligari, they'll you know bring it in and then hold it so that the whole scene is black except for maybe one person's face. So that we know to focus on that person, and then it'll, you know, either close or open from there. Mm -hmm. I thought that, for me personally, the most effective use of specifically film techniques in this movie was in Alan's Murder, mm, where there's yeah. great editing, there's close-up, uh, you know, his hands reaching out, there's... The shadow? Right. So that was the most striking thing, is you have this ominous lighting effect, where we see the action as shadows on the wall, and the thing I was thinking was, we've seen that a million times in movies after this. I don't think we've seen it before this in any of our horror films. I think a big part of that is you would need a lot of contrast for the shadows to really show up. Mm -hmm. And this movie just dives into doing that kind of contrast. Mm -hmm. So it, maybe that allowed it to be a bit more possible. Yeah, I think it's what sort of made my film history brain go off was seeing that in this movie, and I don't, I didn't remember that scene. And it's funny because that's a signature technique of horror films. It's here in this movie. I didn't remember it was in this movie. And if you asked me, like, oh, what movie made that technique popular, I would say Nosferatu, mm. which came after this. And so it sort of made me wonder, like, why is this movie's use of it not famous, especially when everything about this movie is famous and copied. <laughs> yeah. But when we think of that shadow technique, we don't think Caligari, we think Nosferatu. Is it just because everything else in this movie is so distinctive that it just kind of overwhelms that scene and you forget about it? I think it's the most subtle scene in the movie. Huh. That's, I, I mean, that's fair. I think it's the most cinematic scene in the movie. 
yeah, everything else is like like Conrad Veidt's thick eyeliner. Like it, <laughs> they're like, this is here. Let me show you how much is here. Um, the way that the lighting is painted on stairs up, like the staircase. Yes, yeah, so followed. so much of the lighting effect in this movie isn't lights. It's literally painted onto the sets so that it's like, nope, that's the effect. Yeah, even the simplest thing like a flower vase is so in your face, and I love it. But it's not subtle. They did not go down to, like, a prop shop for anything in this movie. Nothing in this movie looks normal. They have built everything from scratch to be, you know, like you were saying, a flower vase is a bizarre vase. Yeah. You know, the, the town clerk's desk is six feet high and covered in numbers. Nothing is normal. Everything about everything is bizarre. Yeah. I think the only reason that was done in shadow is so we can see how gruesome the murder is, but without seeing who the murderer is. Right, because it's still technically a mystery at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to get into ranking? Sure. Okay. So currently, uh, our number one movie is Student of Prague. I think really the only question here is, is Caligari number one or is Caligari number two? Let's start off. Eerie Tales, also German, same time period, also Conrad Veidt. Is this better or worse? Oh, it's tough because that's an anthology movie. Right, but at least Cabinet of Dr. <clears throat> Caligari didn't end with ten minutes of French court comedy. Yeah, I think because they, they went for it. As much as you can be like, well, but the framing narrative, like, no, they went for things they didn't try to have a palate cleanser at the end. Mm -hmm. So, yes, Caligari is better than Eerie Tales. So then, is Caligari better than Student of Prague? I really like Student of Prague. <laughs> I really liked it. Mm -hmm. I agree that Student of Prague is good, but here's my problem with Student of Prague, right? Is what percentage of Student of Prague was taken up with? Rom-com. Oh, right. So here's something I, I realized I loved watching Caligari this time. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is 77 minutes, and it is tight. There is not a minute of that film that does not further the narrative. You know, we know that uh, Alan and Jane and Francis are in a love triangle. It's established really early on. We get some dialogue establishing it. It shows us how everyone's connected. But we don't go on, like, some Archie Andrews three-way date scene with, like, everyone mooning over each other over milkshakes and, like, sighing at how much uh, they love each the other. Did same student of Prague? No, I just mean, like, that would happen in a movie that was less focused. If this was a D.W. Griffith movie, that would have been a ten-minute scene. I suppose there is just the continual, ongoing, like, flower girl chasing after the student of Prague as he... Yeah. There's a lot of, like, filler. Student of Prague is good, but it does have a lot of filler. And the other thing is it, Student of Prague gradually becomes a horror movie. It starts as a romantic drama, which is what it calls itself on the title card. Yeah, I think that's why I love it. I, that's fair. Because, like, it's just a romance, and then it takes a hard left into horror. Right. That's I fair. I really like that. That was very, yes, that's very effective. Whereas Cabinet of Dr. Caligari tells you what's up from, like, the word go when, like, the font of the title comes on and it looks like a madman has scrawled it onto a wall in shock. Yeah. You know? Is this the first movie, in your opinion, that's just really gone for it? Yeah. I think so. I think that everything else has kind of hedged its bets. Student of Prague, 
you know, did a little bit just by, even though the ending certainly went for it in Student Prague, I'll give Student Prague that ending any day of the week. And I mean, you could argue that Caligari pulls back on the ending because it ends with our doctor saying, oh, I can cure him. But I've argued that that ending is more sinister than perhaps it lets on. The other thing is like Caligari for me is just a better film because... Well, yeah, I would agree that it's technically... In its making of a movie, it is better. Yeah, I think that the thing that you can see in Caligari is that, you know, everyone working on that film from the top down is contributing to a singular vision for what that film's going to be. I think that Student of Prague has a tendency to be a bit all over the place sometimes with what it is and what it's doing. Um, so as, a, as good as Student of Prague was, I think Caligari goes above it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Get a reluctant agreeing? yeah. I mean, yeah, you made a really great case for it. I I wonder if it's maybe the hipster in me <laughs> being like... Oh, no, Not wanting to put it there? We have to put the obscure, only recently released, redone, remastered, remastered, pretty... Yeah, uh, restored, that's the word we're looking for. Historic. Yes. Student of Prague is number one. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit more like everybody knows Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but Student of Prague is is, is something it's like we, the underdog. We discovered it, you know. Yeah. No one knew about it until we <laughs> fucking talked about it. <laughs> that's inaccurate at best, but that's definitely <laughs> how I feel. That's definitely a valid feeling that does not hold up to. It's a valid feeling, not a valid uh, justification. <laughs> yes. Okay, so coming into the list at number one, strong showing out the gate. Uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, 1920, directed by Robert Vina. So, our next film is the another Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde adaptation. Our third one. Yes, already. Uh, it is from 1920. It's directed by John S. Robertson. And famously, it stars John Barrymore. So, John Barrymore was a American theater actor who uh, was tempted to film with the opportunity of doing this movie. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because he is the progenitor of the Barrymore acting family, oh. which continues all the way to this day with Drew Barrymore. Cool. Uh, I have not seen this one. Well, John Barrymore was most famous for having a very handsome profile. So we will see a good start. how it goes for you. All right, right. so uh, until next week. If you'd like to check out the list as it stands, you can check out our Tumblr page, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Uh, you can subscribe on SoundCloud and on iTunes. And if you would like to contest us moving Student of Prague down to number two, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can submit through our ask box on Tumblr. All right, so we will see all you next week. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.